welcome to Dino Insights. Today's discussion is our continuing series on test cell design and construction. Today we'll focus on room design and construction. Chris, this is another important one to consider going forward when putting together a test cell or designing a test cell. The one thing I do want to say, Chris, at the beginning of this is that this is just touching the tip of the iceberg in regards to what we're going to cover under this section. It's not meant to cover every single thing or every consideration required that you need to think about when designing a test cell, but it does give some high-level considerations that you need to keep in mind. I guess it's a big topic, and we need to introduce some of the factors, and then we get into details as we go through it. Yeah, good idea. I think we can break this down later on, so if people are focused on wanting to learn more about the details behind HVAC systems or the test cell construction itself, again, we can pick and choose and and dive a little bit deeper, provide more detail for those people that are interested. I guess we're going to look at all the details that go into the cell, into the room. and Yeah, there's a considerable amount of things that you need to look at and evaluate to make decisions on how this is going to look and function. Okay, we're going to talk about some of the decisions we need to make and some of the questions we need to ask around the, the cell layout, the equipment required. Yeah, I mean, if you take it from a high level, you're looking at things like engine size and type now and into the future. So again, we're talking about a brick and mortar example when we go through the series for the most part. So part of that is engine size. Part of that is that's the engine we know now, but what are we going to be doing in the future? And obviously that's the hardest question to answer because depending upon the type of business you're in, you may not know that. So you're going to try to stretch your capital dollars to make it as diverse as possible or capable moving forward. But I guess if we try and sort of future-proof it too much with a whole range of engines, then we're going to have the danger of oversizing some of the componentry? Yeah. Funny enough, early on in my career when I was going through the process of designing the first test cells, and I spent a lot of time doing it is saying, okay, I know we need to test engines of this size, but what if the horsepower's doubled? What if the speed's doubled? What's the room got to look like? What does it have to be capable of? What are the equipment that we're going to be using? And you're right, oversizing could be a problem too. So you've got to balance it out in your decision making as you're trying to figure out what's this test cell going to do now and then into the future, its capabilities. Right, so that covers the the sizing of the dyno, but also the size of the room, the cooling system, the exhaust system. Really, every part of this will relate to the engine performance, the engine size. You're talking about a room where there are a lot of things coming into it from an infrastructure perspective, utilities, and a lot of stuff going out, cooling, ventilation, fuel. There's a lot of things to be considered. The room dimension size, and again, just a high level from a room dimension size, is you want to keep the room as small as possible because you're talking about getting rid of heat. And the more heat you have to get rid of, the more of the infrastructure, the larger pieces of equipment, ventilation systems that you have to have. So you've got to understand your heat loads is one of the parts of the equation to determine your cell size. That's fine, but one of the contradictions with that is that if you get too small a cell, we're trying to fit an exhaust system in there, we're trying to fit fuel systems in there. There is a certain amount of space you require around the engine to both equip it and to service it. Yeah, it's a valid point. And, and it's also not just the perimeter, but it's also the ceiling height as well. So if you're bringing stuff in and out, are you going to be having a trolley on the top of the ceiling where you need a certain distance up in the air to lift the engine up and over your dynamometer? It's all what you want it to be for functionality. You get to determine that, but you need to consider that in the process, things like that. 
Okay, so if we've assumed a certain engine size is going to be fitted in this cell, then having decided the size of the room, what comes first then? you think we should be looking at the cooling system or, or the exhaust system, perhaps, in terms of usage of the space in the test cell? You really can't do one or the other. It has to be done in parallel. So you select the engine size first. You select, this is the largest engine, or these are the types of engines I'm going to run. And I'll give you an example. One of the first test cells I designed, we considered that the first project we had was for a small four-cylinder engine, but we knew that we would be testing V8 engines into the future. So we said, okay, we need to be able to test a four-cylinder engine, but we also need to test an eight-cylinder engine. One of the considerations wasn't just the size of the dynamometer, the size of the engine, is the front-wheel drive four-cylinder, the four-cylinder application was front-wheel drive. So we had to consider where does the exhaust go because the customer didn't want to alter the exhaust. So on a front-wheel drive engine in a car, how it's transversely mounted, the exhaust had to come straight out. So that meant it would hit the side of the wall inside the test cell. So we actually had to design a portal in the wall for the exhaust to tuck through the wall versus go towards the back of the cell. It may be hard to visualize, but... Now I can see how that would work. It's important that we recreate as near as possible the vehicle layout in the exhaust to, to be accurate with its its back pressure, its influence on the engine performance. So that's where space becomes quite important. Mm -hmm. So I understand the contradiction with the heat rejection, but we do need space in there to install some of this equipment. Well, it's a balance, and you're absolutely correct. You do need space to include it, and it's a balance between how much space you have or need versus nice to have. You want to keep the cell as small as possible, but you have to consider all the things that you brought up as well as far as equipment being in the test cell itself versus can we mount it on the outside of the test cell. If you look at the cost to ventilate a room, a small room, or one twice the size, it could be significant as far as the cost to be able to do that versus is it actually needed. So when you put equipment in a room, you decide, okay, if I put the equipment in the room, I need this much space. Can I put the equipment outside the test cell and still accomplish what I need to do well, still comes, save on space. Right, so more than just the engine, we're also looking at the type of testing we're doing and how close to a vehicle sort of simulation it needs to be. That will right. affect some of those discussions and decisions. Right, and again, the four-cylinder exhaust that I used earlier, that was an actual requirement. It had to be an unaltered exhaust system. We couldn't even put a 90-degree bend on it. And we could not simulate with back pressure. They wanted the full exhaust system unaltered to be tested. Quite an extreme one. Okay, then. so having decided the engine, we've now got a, an idea of the size of the exhaust. We know what sort of fuel quantity we'll have to supply. We know what sort of cooling will be required. Where do we go next? We're still talking about how we're utilizing the test cells. So you're still talking about, okay, I need to construct walls and a ceiling. In order to do that, I still need to answer some questions. Are you going to be double-ended in the cell? Meaning, are you going to have a dyno in the middle? and you're going to test on either end of that dyno, or is it just going to be a dyno and one-end operation? Because that'll determine the cell size versus efficiency gains of having a double-ended system. How are you going to get the engine in and out of the test cell, right? You need to decide, is it going to come in with a fork truck? Are you going to use different means, or how are you going to get this in the test cell? And that will determine sizing of the test cell as well. Because if you need to get the fork truck inside the test cell, it's going to be a bigger test cell. Okay, so I suppose people have used many different methods from an engine crane to, as I say, to a forklift or to a built-in hoist in the cell. I've seen a lot of different examples, and most of the ones I've seen is they'd have a monorail system with a hoist inside the test cell. So you brought the 
engine in on a cart or a temporary cart and you've lifted the engine inside the cell, you've lifted it and put it on top of the bed plate or the fixture on the bed plate to hold the engine. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. Other ways are automatic, more automatic or efficient as far as test cell docking systems. But All right. So if you've decided on a particular hoisting system to work, we then still need to look at some of the walls and structure of this as for the control room, for example, and how that might be configured relative to the test cell operating room itself. Right. So let's go through the high-level infrastructure yeah. considerations. So you've got to bring fuel into the test cell, and you probably got to take fuel out of the test cell depending upon what type of system you have. So you've got fuel considerations, the sizing and where it comes into the test cell. You've got engine exhaust. So you've got to determine where the engine exhaust is going to be in the test cell, where are you going to have quick access ports or convenient access ports right next to the engine, or is it going to run all the way to the back of the test cell, or is it going to go up in the ceiling? You've got your exhaust to the engine. You've got electrical, and electrical goes in different facets. You've got your high-power electrical for powering up some of the switchgear or the relays, and you've got your instrumentation wiring that may be going in and out of the test cell. So you have to consider all the routing and how that comes about. You've got your cooling water. So whether you're cooling your engine or cooling your dyno, you've got cooling water coming in, and you've got cooling water returning back to you if you have a recirculatory system. So You've got fuel, you've got cooling water, you've got exhaust, you've got the consideration of cell ventilation. Again, you've got air coming in to cool the room and air going back out or a version of that to keep the cell cool. Okay, just take a step back for a moment with the uh, the cooling. So if we're running a hydraulic brake, we're going to have to drain the dyno as well as provide cooling for the engine. So mm-hmm. we have to have a, a gravity drain to take the water away. We have to take that out of the cell as well as the cooling water and, and recirculate that so it can be cooled and pumped back in again. Right. So I suppose if that were an AC dyno, then we'd still have the cooling requirement, but less complexity on the water system. Correct. It'll be more so the size of the water system more than anything else, as far as how much cooling you need. You still have got water that has to come in and cool, and you've got the return that has to go somewhere. Whether you're wasting it all and dumping it to the drain if you don't have a large water requirement, or you're recirculating it through a system with cooling and filtration. Yeah. And it's interesting that if that were an AC machine with the power we'd have to absorb, then the cabling becomes an issue where you can't actually just lay a wire where you want it, you're going to be putting pre-bent cables in almost as if they were the same size as water hoses. Right. And good point, because it, again, dependent upon the size of the AC dynamometer, the cabling can be quite extensive. And the bend radiuses can't be a general bend radiuses that take up a lot of room inside a test cell or in the ceiling or wherever it's being routed. Right. Okay, so we've talked then about quite a few aspects of the uh, of the dyno. I was thinking back to the infrastructure discussion we're on as well, of the the layout. So you need, obviously, door to bring the engine and the people in and out. That's straightforward. Mm. But windows as well, I suppose, between the control room and the, the test cell? Or is that typically be cameras and screens? Well, that's a good topic to talk about because you've got different schools of camp when it comes to that. And it's your personal preference. So do you have to have a window? No, you don't. A camera can work. It's personal preference. And most of the test cells that I've been in, 95% of them have had windows in them. So your consideration of 
windows would then be what type of window I need to put in from a safety perspective. Yeah, protection from if something does let go within the test cell. Right. And doors is the same thing. If you were to put doors inside a test cell, it should not your standard door. Most of the times that you're putting doors in test cells, whether it be a double entry door or a single entry door, they're going to be sound deadened doors. They're going to be fairly extensive in regards to its construction and noise absorbing capabilities. So they're fairly heavy doors on cam lock hinges. So those need to be considered. And if you're bringing in a fork truck, your doors need to be extra tall to get the mast of the fork truck at its lowest setting through the doorway with whatever you're carrying. So those are just little things, but all need to be considered. Yep, I understood. Then if we've now laid out the cell, we've got some idea of the, the passages for the coolant, etc. Some the fuel coming in and out, the exhaust coming out. What else? We've got to look at some of the peripheral equipment and how that's wired into the cell. So I guess the instrumentation has to be laid in there as well. You don't want the wires to be lying around. They want to be specifically rooted out of the way, don't they? Right. That's a decision-making criteria you have to talk about. Do I want to embed the conduits for electrical and instrumentation in the walls? Because I've seen test cells where some of the high-power routing was done through the walls and then just stubbed out on a point above the concrete on the wall itself versus trenches or a combination of where you're running a lot through the trenches around the bed plate. So you'll have your conduits or your wire routing within the trenches themselves to just standard surface mount conduits on the walls and the ceiling. Right. So some of which involves quite serious civil works and some of it can be added in afterwards. I guess there's some extent of that, whatever you do, we're going to be still adding things because instrumentation demands may increase. It's difficult to future-proof that one. It is. And that's why in most of the circumstances that I've built test cells, I've tried to put in trenches or things that allow you to adapt to future requirements. So if you have to run another cable or a wire, you're not adding another conduit to a wall. If you are adding a conduit, it's out of the way, it's in the trenches, you have a a route to go from the test cell into the control room if need be. Okay, then I guess from a safety point of view, we touched on the safety glass before, but also fire extinguishing. Pretty important when you're dealing with fuel and oil and and the effective spillages in hot areas. Mm -hmm. So we need a fire control system of some sort. Now, some of those can be quite extensive and quite, well, quite risky for the test cell occupant if somebody's in there and some are more benign. Yeah, that's a regulated item based upon where you are, where the test cell is located geographically. You may have local requirements, state requirements, even federal requirements when it comes to fire protection. So it could be a system that uses a, a sprinkler system, a high hazard sprinkler system. It could be a CO2 system. They have sprinkler systems now, or they don't even call it sprinklers, they're high droplet mist systems that extinguish fires by removing oxygen, displacing oxygen in the test cell itself. And that's the whole premise behind most of the systems. There's lots of different ways to suppress the fire. It is guided by ordinances, and you have to check with your local facilities or your local municipalities and governing restrictions in your area. Right, so you touch on different areas. I guess that brings with it different climatic conditions also. So if the cell is going to be subject to high changes of humidity or, and or temperature, then we're going to have to be pretty extensive in, in the control of the air moving through the cell to keep everything to a standard level. It's defining what do you need it to do. Do you need temperature control to plus or minus one degree or is plus or minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit okay? Do you need to control the humidity in the test cell? Do you need to bring the temperature down low 
where you need supplemental cooling to do that. It's all what you need it to do. Or you just need to keep the temperature within the range of what the instrumentation is and nothing more than that. Or keep it from getting too hot in the test cell. It's up to the customer to specify, and it depends upon what you're testing, how you're testing, what the equipment is that you're utilizing in the test cell, what their limitations are as far as temperature. I suppose the test to pass off a new engine or to some of the more simple development tasks would be okay. But if we get into certification and using this information for any level of documentation, then we need to be very clear on, on what the climatic conditions are in the cell and that needs to be controlled to within certain bounds. And typically what happens is it's extremely difficult to control a large volume of air such as a test cell to very tight conditions when it comes to temperature and humidity. So typically when you're doing emissions-based work or certification testing, you're using supplemental air intake, which is defined as what I call combustion air. So it's the air that the engine's consuming. So you're running a hose basically to the engine inlet, and you're conditioning that specific air through a separate system that controls the temperature and humidity much tighter than the test cell itself. Well, Mike, thanks for going through the details around the uh, the test cell layout, the equipment, the areas we've got to consider, the factors we've got to design into this. I guess one area we, we didn't really talk about a lot was noise in the control room, but typically that will be a separate room from the test cell itself. So that'll be a control and have enough barrier between the operating engine and the operators. When I talked earlier about what goes into the construction, it's not your typical door. So whether it's leading into a control room or it's leading outside into a shop area where other people are located, there are requirements, decibel requirements that you need to maintain to make sure everybody's safe from a hearing perspective around that environment. And oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for the introduction to the test cell structure, some of the design factors. I think next time we're going to move on to more details around the ventilation and the HVAC system required for the test cell. Thank you for the discussion today. I look forward to the next talk. Yep, it was my pleasure. And thanks, everybody. We'll see you at the next podcast. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights presented by Fruit. If there are any engine testing topics you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at foodino.com.